1. Now, Ezra is right after 2 Chronicles, right before the book of Nehemiah, page 640 in my Bible. It may not be the same in yours, but it's in that general area. Nehemiah and 2 Chronicles. J. Vernon McGee. That's it. Y'all remember him? Anybody? J. Vernon McGee. Oh, he, he was some kind of a preacher. But that song always makes me think of his radio program. I know my dad was a big fan of J. Vernon McGee, so that song was one of my favorite old hymns, and I think it's because of that radio program. Ezra, we're going to look at the first few verses. Probably, I'm not going to get through chapter 2. That's my plan. I'm probably not going to make it. Uh, chapter 1 tonight. But before we get started... If everybody has it, once you have it, look up here and we'll have a word of prayer. I'm going to give you time to find it. Some of y'all cheated went to the front of your Bible and found where it was, didn't you? That's all right. I do that too from time to time. Let's have a prayer. Father, tonight as we look at your word, I pray that uh, we would do so uh, as we should always do so when we come to your word. With an open heart and mind, with a desire to hear from you, desire to uh, hear your word, not uh, any preconceived ideas, but what your word tells us. I pray that we would see, uh, as uh, the Apostle Paul says, that these things in the Old Testament were written beforehand. They were written uh, for us, for our encouragement, written to show us, God, that you are God. You were God then. You're still God now. That you're sovereign, that you're on the throne, that you're in control. I pray we would see that this evening. Father, thank you for this time. For those that are here, for those that are watching and listening online, uh, God, I pray that when we're through with a message tonight, we will have uh, within our own hearts a personal desire to study deeper and to know more. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to ask you a question as we start this study tonight. How many of you like roller coasters? You know, amusement park rides? You know, the, 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 the bigger, the better, the taller, the better, the faster, the better, right? No, that's not me. Uh, I don't care for them. I, I can't handle them. They don't like me. I don't like them. There's too many turns and twists, drops, loops, corkscrews, high speeds. I mean, it disrupts my delicate equilibrium. I don't like being on a roller coaster. I can't stomach them, and, and, and my stomach can't take them. I will never forget, Marsh and I were kids. We've been married what a year at that time. We went to, you know where I'm going with this. We went to Disney World, Disneyland. What's in Florida? Huh? World, Disney World. We went to Florida. Uh, Disney World. And like I said, I'm not a big roller coaster rider. Marcia at that time, I think she still rides them some, but she was crazy about them. And so they had a new one. They were just unveiling the week we were there. And I forget what it was called, but it was, it was like a missile. You're in a tube. And it's laser lights, and it goes about Mach 5. Uh, and uh, I said, babe, I can't ride that. She said, it's all, it won't be that bad. I said, I can ride it if it doesn't go upside down or backwards. She said, oh, no, it don't do any of that. Now, I want you to know to this day, I still don't trust her in amusement parks. But uh, we, we got in that thing. They strapped you in, and uh, the music started blaring, and then the lights come on, and that thing said, whoo, and dropped about 20,000 feet, it felt like, right off the bat. And then up and around, and guess what? It did go upside down several times. And then it, it come to a stop up at the top. I was like, oh, thank you, Lord. It's over with. About that time, it started backing up. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> and then, whoo, it dropped. And we did the whole thing backwards. Uh, yeah. Now, i got to be honest with you. I began to wonder, is anybody controlling this thing? Or has it got a mind of its own? 
you know, I, I started praying for the end to come, and I really didn't care how it comes, just as long as it comes, is over with. You know, I want you to think about something. Life sometimes is like that, isn't it? We've all had those experiences. Life starts twisting, turning, spinning, coming faster than our minds can process, and, and, and perhaps even faster than our stomachs can digest, and we wonder, is anybody at the controls? Now, I think all of us, sometimes we, we feel that way, especially lately. When we're trying to uh, take in all that's going on in our country from the virus stuff and the lockdown quarantine and then the, the protests that are going on and the riots that followed and then, not to mention the news, uh, you listen to the news, it makes you sick at your stomach because you don't know what's true or what's not. I mean, you got all this stuff going on. It's enough to mess with your internal equilibrium. It's enough to make a person sick. It's enough to make a person ask, hey, has anybody got their hand on the wheel? Is anybody controlling this thing? Now, this feeling, I'm going to tell you, folks, it's nothing new. It's not unique to our day. It's always been this way. I believe that every generation throughout history has probably asked, is anyone controlling what's going on? Anybody controlling this? That may well have uh, people been asked that throughout the years, and I'm sure that they would have answered that question by whoever was the power at the moment, whatever empire was reigning and ruling at the moment. I mean, if you asked in, uh, say, in Joseph's day, who's controlling this? Who's in charge? Who's got their hand on the wheel? They would have said, well, Egypt and Pharaoh. If you asked, uh, say, here in... Uh, uh, or in Daniel's day, in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, who's in charge? They would have said, well, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar is. If you ask that question in Paul's day, I'm sure there were some who would have said, well, Caesar and Rome is in charge. And then again, if you ask that in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah's day, who was in control? They just said Persia and Cyrus. Now, the truth is, they would all have been wrong. They would all have been wrong. Nations and rulers, I want you to hear me now, they may scratch and claw and fight in order to become the great superpower of the world, but understand, friend, no person or nation ever truly has control of the wheel. They don't have control of the wheel for two simple reasons. One, they don't own the wheel that directs history. And number two, they don't own the ship of history. God owns those things. And friend, there's only one hand... On the helm of history, and it's God's hand. God's the one in control. Now, as we look at Ezra chapter 2, uh, I mean chapter 1, try to look through the first two chapters, but again, don't think we're going to make it. That's something that we're reminded of, that God's in control. And I think for every Christian in every age, that should be a great comfort. Is it a comfort to you? I mean, I'm so thankful that the Democrats are not in control. I'm so thankful that the Republicans, and I'm saying this because I don't want to alienate anybody, that the Republicans are not in control. I'm so thankful that uh, uh, our Supreme Court's not in control. God is in control. I believe that's a great comfort. Even uh, when we can't see His hand or the destination on the horizon, there's comfort in knowing it doesn't matter. God's still in control. Now, to understand and appreciate the lessons that we're going to learn tonight, I think I need to give you a little bit of background. I think it's necessary. We need to know what's happened in biblical history to this point and what's taking place. So here goes. Okay, when David died, his son Solomon became king. And during his life and reign, uh, Israel rises to the peak of her glory. And the nation expands. And they begin construction. They, they build a temple. They build a palace. They build the governmental buildings in Jerusalem. But Solomon, in the latter years, 
When he gets older, he begins to drift away from God. And he does so because of the influence of his wives. And I say wives, plural, because we know the Bible said he had 700 of them. He's supposed to be the smartest man, the wisest man that ever lived. I don't quite see that at that point. But he had 700 wives. And a matter of fact, 1 Kings uh, chapter 11, verse 3, said he had 700 wives, 300 concubines. And verse 4 says, in latter years as he began to age, that his wife turned his heart away from God. And his heart turned away from God and away from the worship of God and away from the temple. Now after Solomon is gone, his son Rehoboam becomes king. And under his reign, his pitiful reign, and poor leadership, I might add, the kingdom's divided. Ten tribes to the north, they secede, forming Israel. The two larger tribes of the south, they form Judah, which is David's line. He's David's line. Israel, the northern kingdom, they sin grossly against God. And God judges them, and they were taken captivity. Uh, they were dispersed by the nation of Assyria. And in 722 B.C., that's when that happened. And that kingdom, that was never, they were never heard from again. Now, while the southern kingdom of Judah lasted longer than the northern kingdom of Israel, they didn't fare much better, folks, because they didn't learn by observing the example and the lessons of Israel. Because they did the same thing. They uh, had the same sins of idolatry. They didn't heed the warnings of God's men of prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. They were warned from the moment that they left Egypt, from the moment that God set them free from captivity, <coughs> excuse me, they were warned not to forsake the Lord, not to worship other gods. They were warned to be faithful to God. They were told to lead a distinct and a holy lifestyle. But the fact is, just like many of us do at times, they failed. So, in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon attacked and destroyed Jerusalem. The temple's left in ruins. The wall around God's city is burned. It's just rubble and rocks. The people are decimated. And we know from history that Babylon employed a very shrewd military tactic or military policy. Matter of fact, uh, there were several ancient kingdoms that did this. And what they would do, and we know this from reading the story of Daniel, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that what they did, they took the brightest, the most success, successful, the most beautiful uh, young people of a nation they conquered, and they took those people back to, with them to Babylon. They assimilated those kids or those young people into their own society for two reasons. Number one, it benefited Babylon, and also it left the nation they conquered in ruin with little hope of rebuilding without future leadership. Then, 562 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar dies. And when he dies, the empire of Babylon rapidly begins to decline. And while the Babylonian empire is declining, Cyrus and the Medo-Persian kingdom was gaining, gaining great power. They were beginning to conquer all the kingdoms in their path, and they eventually made their way to the great city and the empire of Babylon. And in 539, they conquered it, and a new empire began to reign. Now, listen to me, folks. At this point in history... It's been 70 years since Judah had been taken captive by the Babylonians. And that brings us to where we are right now, beginning tonight in the study of Ezra. So look with me in chapter 1. Let's read, uh, let's read all the verses of chapter 1. It won't take that long. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah... The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, 
Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven. Now, this is a pagan king talking. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. However, or whoever there is among you of all his people, <coughs> may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Now, I want to remind you one more time. This is a pagan king making this decree. Verse 5. Then the heads of the fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even every one whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, with valuables, aside from all that was given as a free will offering. Verse 7. Also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithredith. Excuse me, I couldn't get it out. The treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazar. The prince of Judah. Now this was their number. 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, <clears throat> 30 gold bows, 410 silver bows of a second kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. And Sheshbazar bought, brought them all up with the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. So there you have the opening remarks of the memoirs of Ezra. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Cyrus. Cyrus was a wise, and he was also a peaceful ruler. Uh, you study history. Cyrus, he had the loyalty and the adoration of those under him, and also, which was unique, especially for ancient times, he even had the respect of those that he conquered. And one of the reasons he, he had that respect, he encouraged people to develop their own culture, to continue their own culture. He encouraged them to continue their religious practices. And in that way, it makes him unique. It makes him special. It makes him unique uh, above any other ruler of the ancient world. But let me tell you something that makes Cyrus even more unique than that. And it's found in verse 1. Cyrus was not where he was at by accident. He was there by divine providence. Because look at verse 1 again. It says, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Let me give you a little bit of Bible prophecy that will make you go, wow. I mean, it shouldn't. We know God's sovereign. God's in charge. But let me give you a little bit of prophecy. Over 150 years earlier, before Cyrus was ever born, his name was spoken and written down by the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 44, 28, 45, verse 1. Uh, he says that Cyrus, he's going to be God's servant. He's going to be a man. Now, God allowed Isaiah to see this glimpse way off, <coughs> excuse me, into the future. That he was going to have a pagan king by the name of Cyrus that he was going to use as his servant. Now, over 70 years earlier, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 29, beginning verse 10, he prophesied of Judah's coming doom, of the destruction of the temple, and even of those who saw the temple destroyed. And he said after 70 years, God would bring the people back. Church, that's exactly what we see taking place here in the book of Ezra. 
It's a fulfillment of God's Word and God's promise to His people. And what we learn in these verses as we connect them to Judah's history and to Bible, the Bible's prophecies, what we learn, number one, is we have an amazing God. Amen? We have a God who is sovereign over all. God's hand is on the wheel and nothing happens apart from His providence. Now let me read you. Somebody defined providence this way said, providence means that God has an ongoing relationship with creation and directs His creatures and the whole created order to ultimately fulfill His purpose. Now, what we need to understand, all that happened throughout history, all that has happened even throughout history, even the judgment of God's people in their exile, it was part of God's plan. The nation may have felt like that life had spun out of control for them. But I'm going to tell you something. It may have spun out of control in their hands, but it was not out of control in God's hands. It was all working, all moving according to God's plan and God's timing. Now, the author of Ezra, who many scholars believe to be Ezra, uh, but there are other scholars who they say, no, it wasn't Ezra. We don't really know who it was. But whoever the author of Ezra was, I think it was a man by the name of Ezra, but he begins his memoirs in a very unique way. He does explain in history, but he does not explain history according to man-made events. Instead, he explains history by the sovereign will, the promise, and the plan of God. Notice in the opening verses, again, we see God referred to as the Lord, the God of heaven. I'm going to remind you one more time. Yes, this is a pagan king that's speaking these words. And he's using the language of the people to whom he's speaking to. And he's using the religious titles uh, that they would understand. I'm sure he probably has some, uh, you know, Jewish advisors there helping him. But what we see is this pagan king, he acknowledges God, the God of the universe. The God he's talking about is the same God we know. And it's the one that's introduced to us in Genesis 1-1. The God who creates, owns, and directs this world as his possession because it is. And here's what I want you to get in your heart, friend. Nothing happens apart from God. Nothing is beyond God. All things can be used to further his kingdom plan. Look at the language that's used in verse 1. It says, The Lord put it into the mind of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put it into writing. Now, you may want to underline that because that becomes important later on. The idea here, what I want you to get is, uh, it, it did not just cross Cyrus's mind to do this. He just didn't think of it on his own one day and decide, you know what, to be a good guy that I am, I'm going to do this. No. What he did was planted by God in his heart. And why did God do that? Because God had a plan to fulfill and promises to keep, and nothing or no one's going to keep God from fulfilling his plan and keeping his promises. So God planted that into Cyrus's heart. And again, Cyrus was a pagan king. I'm reminded of something that uh, Dr. Adrian Rogers used to say when God would use pagan rulers for his purpose. He said, always remember that God can strike a tremendous lick with a crooked stick. And that's what he's doing with Cyrus. Later on, verse 5, notice it says, When the heads of the father's household, he's talking about family leaders of Judah, and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred or motivated to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Now, let me ask you, what caused these people to have a desire to go and do that? What caused them to do that? Did they just think of that on their own? According to what we just read, it was God. God placed in their hearts. God stirred them to do this. Listen, God's hand is on the helm of history. 
Now, let me give you a little bit about my personal understanding of things. My worldview, how I see life, how I interpret life, it also shapes how I see history and how I understand history. It's not just random events. Listen to me. That's one of the reasons I love history. History is not just random events that are spurred on by the aspirations of men. History is shaped by the very hand of God. Folks, my worldview is, is, is not just influenced by my belief in God. It's shaped by my belief in God. It's shaped not only by my belief in God, but it's shaped by what I believe about God, what I believe about the Bible, and about the gospel. Now, I'm convinced what has transpired in this world, all of history, it's the hand of God, the hand of providence slipped into the glove of history. God was behind it all. God was working it all out. You might say, well, preacher, I I don't agree with you. That's fine. You might say, and I've heard some people explain this way about uh, prophecies in the Bible. They say, well, what happened is uh, uh, God just knew what was going to happen. God didn't cause it to happen. All these prophecies that's in God's Word, it's just God's ability to see further down the road than you and I can see down the road. Well, if that's what you believe, you're free to believe that. I I can't help it if you want to be wrong. you, You can be wrong, but... Uh, these things did not happen because God saw them happening before they happened. They happened, friend, because God was working behind the scenes to make them happen. You say, how do you know? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, I, and I don't want you to misunderstand me. Let me say something while I'm hearing this point. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm about to say, and I'm going to be very careful about this. I'm not denying free will or human responsibility. I will not do that. Why? Because the Bible teaches man's free will. And human responsibility. You say, how does it all go together? You're asking the wrong man. That debate's been going on for thousands of years and nobody can answer that. But I'm telling you, that's what the Bible teaches. But what I want you to know is, folks, you're, as a Christian, you're free. I'm free. I have responsibility, but that is to be understood. Now, let me say this. I don't deny the free will of man, responsibility of man. What I do deny is most people's understanding of those things. And let me put it this way. I'm free. I have a responsibility, but that's to be understood in the light of God's sovereignty. Now, let me explain it this way. I'm not going to define God's sovereignty by my free will or my human responsibility. Oh, no, it's the other way around, folks. I'm going to define my free will and my human responsibility by God's sovereignty. God is the starting point, and you need to understand this. He's the starting point of it all, including how to understand mankind. You have to begin with God. Now, Cyrus, he didn't just comply with this. He was compelled to do this. God stirred his heart to the point that he was bound to follow that stirring. But he followed that stirring freely. That makes sense to you? He said, I still don't understand it. Okay, I don't either, but I'm telling you, that's what happened. We don't have time tonight. We don't have time this year for us to try to break down and reconcile Man's free will and God's sovereignty. If somebody says, well, I can reconcile that. Nope, they can't. If they say that, then they also are going to say, well, I can under, I should understand completely uh, the Trinity. I understand completely the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you something. If that cat says that, you need to watch him. And what I want you to understand is, and I've said it several times, I'm going to continue to say it, God is in control. It's like a, uh, I heard one guy say, it's like a huge... Uh, you know, chessboard of the universe. 
God's the one that sets up the table, sets up the board, sets up the pieces, and God's the one that moves the pieces. Now, I want you to understand this. God is going to ensure that all things work for His glory and for the good of His people. We're told that. Amen? We can believe that. Even when we don't always understand, and just like now, when we can't always explain it. You say again, preacher, don't understand it. Now, I realize when you start talking about sovereignty of God, for some people it can be frightening. For me, that's a great comfort. I mean, it's a tremendous comfort. It means that all the great events of history, folks, even everything that's going on right now in our country and the world, they are under the sovereign control of God's loving hand. The Bible tells us in Romans 13.1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. That means everything that happens, God causes or allows, but either way, it's going to go according to His plan. <clears throat> I want you to think about this. This ought to bring some comfort to you. If God controls those massive national and international events in history, and He works it out according to accomplish His will, then let me ask you, don't you think God's certainly able to take care of your little life and my little life, no matter what we may face? You know, as I consider God's sovereignty and what's taking place, and, and the book of Ezra and Nehemiah go hand in hand, by the way, and I think of what's taking place in that time frame, I can't help but think about in the New Testament uh, passages like Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. Paul says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, what Paul was saying is God orchestrated the events of history so that it would pave the way for the coming of His Son. Well, let me explain something to you. God's orchestrating the events taking place right now so it will pave the way for the coming again of His Son. That's what we're talking about. Taking place in the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. It all relates to Christ. I told you this morning, every book in the Bible somehow points and focuses on Christ. It's, and what we're seeing, what's taking place in God's hand in history, folks, it's part of God's redemptive plan. Listen to me. God had to bring His people back to fulfill this great promise of salvation. Think about the role of the temple. What the temple, it symbolized the presence of God. It was where God dwelt with His people. It was where they worshipped God. And they had the same role as the tabernacle that it played in the, the uh, Exodus wanderings. But think about what took place <clears throat> at the temple. There was worship. There was sacrifice. Now, sacrifice, at this point in time, sacrifice had been taken away. It had not taken place for almost a century. Now, folks, sacrifice was essential for the Jews' faith. Just like sacrifice, it's essential to our faith. Without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we have no faith. So it's essential. Rebuilding that temple, that was part of God's plan to begin to, to start once again pointing His people to the coming Messiah. That's what all those sacrifices in the temple represented. It was important for them uh, to be a people again, for them to return to their ancestral home. That's why when you get into like chapter 2, we have a list of those that are returning. People say, I don't want all these lists in here. They can't be any value. They're a lot more important than what you think they are. There's a reason that these people are listed. God promises. His promises, they hadn't been forgotten. His, uh, his people, they hadn't been forgotten. 
Now, Babylon, that great empire that destroyed Jerusalem, it was no more. Cyrus and the Medo-Persian Empire came in and destroyed them. But who do we still find present and going home by the sovereign hand of God? God's people. All the world's shakers and motivators and everything that happened, but God's people are still taken care of. God's people are headed home. How many times have you heard me say there's always a remnant of people that God calls out? Now, there's a second point I want you to see. Not only that we have a sovereign God, but, but listen, folks, we have a part to play in God's plan. Do you realize that? These people are not forced to go by Cyrus back to rebuild the temple. They're given an opportunity to go. And here's what I find amazing. Most of those folks had never been to Jerusalem. They'd never even seen it. They'd never seen the temple. They'd never participated in worship or sacrifice. They had made a good life for themselves in Babylon. As a matter of fact, I believe that's what the prophet Isaiah told them to do. He said, go ahead and make your life right there where you're at. They had no reason to go. There was nothing really for them to go back to. I mean, there was rubble. There was ruin. There was conquered and weak people still living there. There was going to be a lot of danger. There was going to be a great cost. So why did they go? Well, it's simple, folks, because God called them and compelled them to go. God's Spirit moved on their spirit, and they went for spiritual reasons. Now, I'm reminded of, uh, at times, I've heard people ask preachers, why in the world would you go there? Or missionaries, why in the world would you go there? And it always amazes me that people seem surprised when they say, well, God laid it on my heart. I was compelled to go. That's the door that God opened. You know, any of us, if we're, if we're listening to God, if we're following the direction of the Holy Spirit, we're going to go where God compels us. We're going to do what God compels us to do. Now, here's what I want you to get. God always has a remnant. God's people are never the majority. But you know what? It doesn't matter whether we're the majority in this world because we're His people, because we belong to Him, right? So it doesn't matter whether we're the majority. I mean, as Christians, as God's people, we're different. We have a distinct call. Uh, we, we live by the principles of God, and we wait for the fulfillment of the promises of God. We are people, and here's what, what I like. Just like, now think about this. Just like these people in Ezra's time, they were headed to a home they'd never seen. Well, you know what? As Christians, our hearts are always looking toward home. And we're looking forward to home, to a home that we've never seen. But by faith, we know it's there, and we're looking forward to it. I'm going to start winding up here. Mervyn Brenneman, in his commentary, the, the New American Commentary on Esther, uh, Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah, he says this, This small group would have been unnoticed by the world, but they were a part of God's redemptive plan. The parallels, and this parallels the church. We, and he's talking to the church, are the center of God's attention and his chief means of fulfilling his mission in this world. Now think about it. God raised these people up. He raised up leaders. He brought back the priests, the Levites. He brought these different people together for an important task. What was the task? Rebuilding the temple. Now, let me make a spiritual application here. I don't want to get too uh, out of the, 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 the uh, interpretation of Scripture, but let me make a spiritual application. God has brought us together, church, and churches like us together for the purpose, and stay with me, of building, I guess you could say a temple, but a different kind. He's called us to build a temple not made with hands, but made of people. Living stones. Now I love the observation James Hamilton in his commentary on Ezra. 
He said that every time God builds a temple or tabernacle, it's built with a plunder from the enemy. And I, I read that and I thought about it thought, how true is that? Moses built the tabernacle with the plunder of Egypt. Solomon built uh, the temple with materials his dad David had plundered in his conquest. And right here we find the people of Babylon, Jews, yes, but also others who were not Jews, contributing, the king contributing, giving back the vessels for the temple. Now, folks, listen to me. As we build this, uh, I say temple, this living temple, as a church, we build with material that's plundered from the enemy. You say, what do you mean, preacher? I mean, as a church, we're to march into Satan's domain and by the power of the gospel and the leadership of the Spirit, we are to lead those who are captive to freedom. We're to bring them to Jesus Christ and bring them to the kingdom. We are to take from the enemy and use for the glory of God. That's what they did in Ezra's time. God is sovereign, folks, and remember, He's at work. And church, here's a great thing. Again, we've been called and privileged to be a part of what God's doing. So let me close by saying this to you. Remember, when it seems this world's spinning out of control and you're asking that question, who's got the wheel? Who's in charge? You remember something. God's sovereign. God has the wheel. God's the one that's in charge. And you also remember this, church. God has a plan. And you and I, Christian, we are privileged to be part of His plan. And here's the great thing about it, Christian. We don't have to wonder what part of that plan is ours. God's already given it to us. Jesus made it real clear. His last marching orders that He gave, He said, Go and make disciples of all the earth. And let me, let me be real clear on this. That command, that part of God's plan, that's not going to change, Christian, for you or for me until God takes us home. We're to be about God's business and about God's plan. And His plan for us is to go and make disciples. Would you bow your heads, please? Father, again, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the instruction it gives. We thank you for uh, the examples that it shows us. I thank you that, uh, Father, we're reminded tonight that you are sovereign, that there's nothing beyond your control and beyond your grasp, that, Father, you, you don't just have foreknowledge, but you control. And we praise you for that because... That lets us know that no matter what transpires, no matter what we face, no matter what happens in this world, God, it's not beyond your control. You're still sovereign. That fact never changes. And the fact that we as Christians are your children never changes. You do have a plan for us. I pray we'd be about that plan. I pray for those tonight who perhaps are here and they don't know you. They would understand that you have issued that invitation to them to come and to know you and to have a relationship with you. Your grace has been extended. I pray for those who have never experienced that grace. I pray for those here tonight who, Father, maybe they're not about your business. They haven't been fulfilling the plan that you have for them. And I pray they would begin to do so. I pray they would be encouraged that now more than ever, with the times like they are, more than ever, we need to be about making disciples. Thank you, Father, for including us in your plan. Thank you for loving us. In Christ's name, amen. You stand, please.